All right, it's Jeff Mayhew, it's John Beatty, it's Politics and Parenting, where we talk about politics, but we talk about it differently. John, how are you doing today? Jeff, Jeff, where do I begin? Thanks for having me again. Uh, long-time listener, um, that's the first time calling. Um, well, just a follow-up from uh, poor little William's uh, wrist. He's he's fine, he's he's on the hanging on the monkey bars. Um, it's because it's bedtime, so he wouldn't be out there right now, but he's happily doing pull-ups now just to show that his wrist is fine. So all's well, it ends well. Um, but you know, I don't know if you know this, but I'm on the Loudoun County School Board and it is uh, it is interesting. We're dealing with uh, our own little drama again, where we have to pick a superintendent uh, for the second time this term because uh, the first guy didn't quite work out. And uh, you know, there's all these rules in Virginia about you being an elected official and sort of what you can do in terms of holding public meetings and trying to be, you know, we like to talk about being available for the public, but there are certain rules about that so that everyone gets an equal access. But there's now another uh, a sort of a tea, Tempest and Teapot where some of the school board members were in this uh, Facebook group that was uh, promoting curb stomping constituents and doxing constituents. So um, we'll see where that goes, but, you know, it's all right. And uh, with, with that, hopefully... Uh, I'd like to introduce our guest tonight, uh, you know, just on a, a positive note, Mr. Ian Lovejoy is running for the House of Delegates. Uh, I don't know if you know this, Ian, but the House of Delegates is very important for fixing education. So um, on that note, uh, have you been to any local school board meetings? Um, yeah, I have. I've um, I've attended some in Prince William County and, of course, uh, in the city of Manassas, where I was formerly a city councilman. Um, so very familiar with the uh, the goings on and sort of the mechanics of our school boards. I think it's interesting that we really push school boards claim to push parental involvement, and then when parents actually show up and get involved, it has some conflicting results. I think it's um, it's right. It's it's only parental involvement when uh, when it's on your side, and, right? And, when, uh, when it's, agree, it's a nuisance when it's not. When you agree wholeheartedly with the school board and you want to make cupcakes, then parental involvement is great. But if you have a question or a contradictory notion, then potentially the FBI gets involved. So yes. <laughs> it's, um, it's some mixed signals, I think, coming from our, some of our most important elected bodies. Um, yeah, no, it's it's tough. Um, and, you know, the like, hardest when... job in politics. I mean, I've you school board members have the hardest job in, in civics. Uh, that's speaking as a former city councilman and somebody running for the House of Delegates. School board is probably, in my mind, the hardest the elected position. So so thank you for doing it. <laughs> I appreciate that. Well, so one of my one of the things that I learned um, being on the school board, and I don't know if I really quite understood it, was the fact that actually in Virginia, the House of Delegates and the state Senate and the governor, they kind of control the Virginia Department of Education, which which actually influences what local school boards do. Local school boards get a lot of say, but really it's kind of a say within the, the sandbox that the state legislature proposes. And one of those problems we deal with is sort of finding the right teachers, keeping our teachers. So uh, you know, are you aware that there's there's a quote teacher shortage? I mean, it depends who you ask. Um, but and if if you've got any ideas on that, like how much you work to support our teachers and maybe help fix this um, this problem where where we're having a shortage of teachers and teachers really need a space in order to actually teach rather than to have the bureaucracy tell them what to do. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm aware of the of the teacher shortage. I my my day job is in recruitment, and so. Uh, we try to keep our finger on the pulse of different industries and education, law enforcement, and a lot of these public sector um, vocations are are really hurting right now. And you know, education is is amongst them. 
if you're you know if you're a teacher you're getting pulled in a lot of different directions um about staying in about staying out uh, i think being a teacher has changed over the last couple of decades i think um you're seeing a bit of a decline in respect for the, the position inside of the classroom from students and and from some parents uh that makes it harder to be a teacher and harder to thrive as a teacher um i think teachers want to know that that we have their backs and that, you know, the student discipline, you know, what side are you going to come down on when there's a, a discipline issue? And is it, you know, are parents going to support the teacher or support their own students and or their own children? And I think you've had sort of a mindset change on that over, over the last couple of uh, last couple of decades. And it's just being harder to teach and to uh, stick with the reading, writing and arithmetic when when education also becomes sort of the socialization factory of our civilization, um, it's it's a perpetual live wire. And I don't think that's what all teachers have signed up to do. And, you know, the more that we can take that out of the classroom and the controversy out of the classroom and simply let teachers teach, I think the happier they'll be. I think we're heading in the right direction. There's been a 10% raise for teachers coming out of Richmond lately. Um, it can't just be money. I think it's money plus quality of the job. And again, I think removing teachers from the controversy that keeps swelling up in the public education system is one way that you can keep them more contented and happy. Most teachers I know would rather have a less stressful day to day than make an extra fifteen hundred dollars and yeah. or two grand. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. No, I, I agree. Um it's I like that you said that it's a vocation because that's so true about teaching. Um and and I would agree too that <clears throat> like he had someone come to public comment last night. So this is Wednesday and that was the Tuesday meeting. And just like they, you know, they said, you know, the $300 raise I got for the year, like it doesn't mean a whole lot. And again, that 10%, it's 10% over two years. Like there's a lot of ways you can kind of like school districts can kind of fudge the math. Um, I've asked this many times with the budget office in terms of like, how does that 10% actually get calculated? And they say, well, there's a complicated formula that we put a bunch of numbers into a spreadsheet and a number comes out and that gets sent to the Virginia Department of Education. And then they basically, it seems like they approve it or something. And then that determines the, the amount. So it's, um, it's, it's true. Like there's a, there's a quote 10% raise that we can thank the, our legislatures in, in, in Richmond and the governor for trying to push through. Um, but it like, you know, that it's complicated and it isn't quite it is. a 10% day-to-day raise. So, um, you know, one of the, the thoughts again about uh, classrooms being live wires is that, um, teachers don't feel like they have a lot of 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 uh liberty in terms of what they can do in terms of how they can run their classroom because they get kind of micromanaged from both sides of the parents from the administration so one one solution that many people talk about is school vouchers i don't know if you've had any thoughts on school vouchers and if that's something that's in the state's purview if that's something that maybe could fix this problem or do you think it's it's a bad idea and it's the wrong tree we're all barking up well i think that uh, to answer the first question it's certainly something that the general assembly has been working on not vouchers per se but the broader concept of money money follows the child um which has debuted in several states uh, throughout the u.s and it, it came the closest as it could uh as, as as it's ever gotten in the last general assembly um uh, glenn davis has been a large proponent of that and pushing for that Broad, broadly, um, it, it generally has strong support um, in the General Assembly. It's when it gets into the nuts and bolts and the details. But it, it came very close to um, allowing the state portion, and you know this as well as anybody, but like there's a state portion that goes to student funding, and then there's a local portion that goes to student funding. Uh, this would have allowed, I think, close to $6,800 of uh, 
the state portion of student funding um, to go to educational institution of the parent's choice. So uh, money follows the child. And it, it, I think it, it comes, it's coming darn close, certainly to passing the General Assembly, uh, the House of Delegates. Um, the Senate is certainly under the current configuration. I can't imagine it passing the Senate. I, I think I, I think it's politically advantageous to certain groups to talk about this as a dichotomy. A it's either public education or it's a voucher system or money follows the, the child system. That's usually a fault line that's artificial in nature. It's it's designed to pit groups against each other. It's designed to scare people um, who are proponents of public education. Of course, I grew up in a public education system. I had teachers who changed my life. I think we all probably did. Um, we have to stop thinking that it's one or the other. You can bolster and improve and um, create better outcomes in public education and simultaneously support options like vouchers and money follows the child. Um, and we have to stop sort of pretending that that it's one or the other. We have to, even if you did money follows the child, there aren't enough private institutions and there aren't enough charters and there aren't enough um, places where kids could suddenly go. So you still have to have a strong and robust public education system. Um, it's not going anywhere and it has to be um, top of the line, but we have to explore all those options. A, a, an incredible amount of money is spent in the education system from textbooks to the chairs the kids set in to the vending to obviously teachers pay and, and benefits. And so a huge amount of money is spent. And so, you know, as public servants, you have an obligation to find the best way to create the best outcomes with that money. Um, and so, I don't think it's the, I think you have to bark up both trees to use your terminology. You have to bark up the improved public education tree and pursue ways to potentially do uh, money follows the child to keep things competitive. And uh, I think Jeff has a thought. So, uh, Jeff, thank you. <laughs> so uh, for, for our listeners um, and those who are local here, uh, you may be familiar with Ian. He's, he's been around for a while. He's one of the politicians that I've, I've come across in the community a lot. Um, and I do a lot of interviewing with principals and teachers, and a lot of them actually know Ian, and they have very nice things to say. So that's always comforting to hear as a parent who's like looking for somebody who um, is very like wanting to make the community better as opposed to just picking one of those dichotomies and going with their team. Uh, somebody that's looking to actually discuss the issues at the ground level with the people doing the job. That's really nice to hear. And I, I agree with you. You know, it, I mean, personally, I think the voucher system is it'll be good for a little bit of time, but then it won't be good, right? Like it doesn't really solve the problem. It's like a Band-Aid. Um, and, and to your point about, and you and John were talking about the teacher's lives uh, and their quality of, of life. I mean, the thing that I hear from teachers most of all is the classroom size is too big. Right. Um, it, you know, what can we do? I mean, I have a plan, right? Like it's a long-term plan. We like It's like a 10-year transition plan where you readjust the school uh, time frames, you split the schools, you split the uh, the kids from going part-time to full-time in, in different segments of the year. So you don't fill the schools as much. So you lower the classroom size. Teachers work year round again, right? Like that's a temporary point right. until you build enough schools. Cause realistically, we just don't have enough schools in the state. Right. Um, you know, like, is that something that like a house of delegates member like yourself or a state Senator can start to like guide its, delegation to like move in this direction stop with the band-aid fixes let's put a long-term plan in place because the schools are just going to continue to be overcrowded right. you know um i mean we're at like almost 30 kids per class right now it's ridiculous 
and I think, and I think, you know, John being on a school board can attest to this. Um, the physical plant is incredibly expensive to maintain in a school system. Um, new, you cannot build a cheap school in 2023. You cannot build. I, I sat with a guy on a plane a few years ago who was an architect for schools, and I just asked, you know, where are the brick buildings that don't win awards that aren't necessarily awe-inspiring, but you can learn just fine in them. And he, you know, said, we, we don't do that anymore. And while I was on city council, um, a new elementary school was built and it's gorgeous and it's nice, but it wasn't cheap. And so there's a huge amount of money and debt service and maintenance that goes into the physical plant of the school system to the point where you're needing a ton of money to maintain that while simultaneously struggling to figure out competitive pay for your staff members and everything. So you you raise a fair point um the i i know that there's sort of a state level trust fund to help schools uh, to help help certain districts build schools but it's a drop in the bucket compared to the billions and billions of dollars that ultimately need to you know need to be spent spent the physical plant so can you reconfigure the year to lower you know participation to the point where the class sizes are smaller i mean it's a novel idea i think the the modern education system was designed by the Prussians and the Prussians haven't existed for hundreds of years. So it's, you know, the, the summer's off and the way that we structure education today. I think the thought experiment is if you were to design education for American students today from scratch with no biases of history or precedent, what would that education system look like? And I honestly think most people would agree. It would look very little like what we actually do. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I think that the pushback you get is, well, who are the poor kids who are going to have to go to school more in the summer? And, you know, if you're spreading it out throughout the year and you're staggering to some extent, what kids are going to school in the summer and what kids aren't? And what does that do to certain certain? We've architected the school year to have summers off, which means entire industries have adapted to the idea of having summers off and kids having summers off. And so what does that do? It's the Dominion rule. I don't know if you've heard about that, the Dominion law. It's the youths are so important to the manpower of king's dominion that king's dominion constantly lobbies against start dates for the school system and having summer school because it needs the child it needs not only teen labor but it needs the kids to go to king's dominion and not be in school so <laughs> one of the biggest so i mean I, and it's fascinating but like if you truly started tinkering with that what other industries would pop up and say hey we're the ice cream people who's going to sell you know well sell the ice cream so you, you um, bring up a good point about King's Dominion, it, and you said that the modern-day education system is was developed by the Prussians. I would argue that our actual modern-day education system was developed by corporations in the 1900s. Like, it's shifted that much. Like, maybe the same basic structure's there, but, like, it's morphed a lot. Like, we don't teach the way that we used to at all. There is an argument to be made that, ed, you know, the modern education system is designed to replicate a workday. You get up early, you show up, you clock in, you prove you can do a task on time throughout the day, you clock out, you go home. Did I just describe education or did I describe a job? Yeah. Um, factory work, as uh, a lot of people say. Factory work, yeah. So it's like, you know, it's a tough day to plan. So um, yes, <laughs> I think it would be hard to ignore those parallels. Um, what you're discussing, yeah, but that's a... That's not a parad that's not bending the paradigm, that's shattering the paradigm. Um, <laughs> and I'm not I I like to I, I was an instructor at Radford, and so I have some 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 experience with teaching, particularly at the college level. And and these 
I think these are the thought experiments you have to do. Like, again, if you were designing the education system from scratch to maximize outcome, to maximize individualization, and to do it as affordably to the taxpayers as possible, what would that education system look like? And then what do we have today? And then what is the gap between those two? And how do you, first of all, I mean, I mean, Jeff, you have, you, you have to get buy-in you have to get the general assembly, the Senate, the governor, and the people to agree to sort of shatter the system and to reconfigure it properly. And that's, I think it's a good a example is, it's a challenge. I think a good, a good parallel is daylight savings time. On paper, everyone says, let's continue daylight savings time. We all hate it when it's dark at four o'clock and whatnot. But when the rubber hits the road, we always run into if you really ask parents, they don't want their kids at the bus in the morning when it's dark. And that's the other consequence. So that to me is sort of the testing of, well, there's this change, there's this concept that has wide appeal, but when you actually talk to the parents, they're going to fill your inboxes with, no, don't do that. I don't want my kid in the dark at the bus stop. Similarly, great idea to do your round school staggering. Mm -hmm. When we suddenly get all the thing, the, all the emails from parents saying, I can't take my kid on a vacation, or my kid is 17 and would like to work over the summer so they can afford a car, you get this massive rippling of unintended consequences that I can't speak to at this moment. I just know they're out there. Yeah. No, I, I completely agree about the unintended consequences of, of decisions by educators. And if I could just throw like a couple words at you that you could think about later, it's staffing standards. If you can you can tweak the staffing standards. You can fix a lot. I think you could, you could help a lot of the, the way education works. But, uh, but Jeff, you're you're a small businessman. You probably got some small business questions. <laughs> well, hold on. I want to I want to finish up with this education yeah. thing real quick because, um, you you mentioned like you gotta you gotta get the general assembly. You gotta get you know the people the te you gotta get all these people on your side to like shatter you know the the system and kind of start from scratch. And you know I, I agree with you, but I mean. It can be done and it's not like shattering it you don't well, just one day wake up and have this new system right. but work with a contingency well, of teachers and uh legislators and parents right. to create this new system and then go out and educate people on why it's a better system and over time maybe five years we start to transition right like I'm just more into like the longer term thinking about solving these problems as opposed to like, I have to get this passed next year because otherwise I'm not going to be up for reelection and I'm just, well, I, I think, I think this ties into, and this is, this is probably like the best answer in a practical sense. It ties into what John mentioned earlier about the sandbox being constructed at the state level. We need to empower jurisdictions to have the ability to petition the state board of education to experiment. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. We, that to me is where you bridge some of these gaps and you start to do the, start to figuring this out. So if you're a jurisdiction that wants to try a different start date or to shift to your round schooling for a section of your population, you start with students who are underserved potentially, and you give them the opportunity to do some summer school extension at, at what, whatever it is, think of the experiment and we need to empower the state school board and the locality to work together on um, um, exceptions and dispensations to allow local school boards to experiment more. I, I've, I've talked about this for a very, very long time, and it's a boring thing, but to me, it's very, very powerful. If the state school board is 
pulled in to take over a local jurisdiction. In statute, the state school board doesn't have to follow its own policies when dealing with that co-opted jurisdiction. So if a jurisdiction is failing, and it's rare, but if a jurisdiction is failing and the state school board has to come in and take it over, the state school board doesn't have to follow its own policies. It has extremely widespread, wide scope powers to go in and try to fix that school system. So we recognize intellectually in the law as it is that throwing the rule book out the window and experimenting and, and trying different things is warranted and is justified and is possible. But right now in statute, it's only possible for the state school board when it comes to a failing school system. So why not take that intellectual um, mindset and apply it to an existing school system that's doing okay, but wants to try something new? Yeah, I th- I think that's brilliant. Like, I mean, and and so, and again, speaking to our listeners here for a second, uh, for the local people who are interested about local politics, who want to find a good politician to support, what Ian is talking about and the way he's describing his mindset is is basically federalism. It's pushing the power down as close to the people as possible and allowing the people on the ground to make decisions, uh, allowing different jurisdictions to experiment creates opportunity for other jurisdictions to grow. And then we can build off of that when we find something that's successful. I, I wrote this down in, um, I've, I've been to a lot of Ian's events and I've written that note of federalism down. It seems to be a theme in the way that you think. Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell people a little bit about federalism and like, you know, or at least maybe not federalism per se, but like your governing mindset of why you, why you think that's a better way to do things? Well, I, I think... I, I, I think that there's an incredible balance that has to be maintained by you, you want there to be a framework established by the state, but you don't want it to be so rigid that you can't, it's like jazz. Like you want to be able to riff a little bit around the edges. And I think that government services by their very nature are designed to they're they're It's the, it's a mass production. Um, uh, you're, you, it, the school systems are mass producing good students, decent students, above average students. The DMV is mass mm-hmm. producing. Or, yeah, yeah, hopefully, hopefully they are. But I mean, go- government services by their very nature are cookie cutter and generally designed to appeal to the average individual and to produce an average result. And which one of us is average, you know, um, I would argue most of us are not average in some way or another. And so you, you have to have this balance of, yes, you're producing and, and, and government services are providing a baseline that is acceptable, but you also have the flex, have to have enough flexibility in the system that you can deal with the exceptional cases. And it's a trade-off because, you know, the more rigid you are, the more cookie cutter you are, the more efficient you are. But also when there are exceptional cases that come down the pike, you're less less able to adapt. And so um, just kind of like the school board thing we mentioned, like, yeah, you need state policy, you need the sandbox, but you can't be so confined into it that if you're, you're stifling some level of creativity, um, like at, at the local level. So I, I'm all for establishing the baseline rules, but you have to have the ability um, to, like I said, riff a bit around the edges because um, that's where innovation happens. That's where advancement lives and progress lives. Um, and we should be re- rewarding that as well. I mean, in, in the city of Manassas, we worked with the state school board and did a program called Footsteps to Brilliance, which was a reading and learning program for um, kids who just weren't quite getting the reading they needed. It didn't work. And I will tell you right now, it, did, it didn't work. It, it did not work, but we tried. 
and now we know and now they understand that and now there's feedback for other schools um i think it's a shame this is a total pivot but uh, the example that i would kind of put in is only only scientific studies that find a positive result get published imagine mm-hmm. if we published studies that didn't find a positive result how much <laughs> time it would save other researchers and scientists to be like i tried this and it it failed like it didn't work i didn't get the the experiments you know didn't hit the confidence level and so it's therefore not publishable so think about all of these this research that doesn't get published because it didn't work out that other people could know about that um that's just always that's always bothered me in the world of research and it kind of bothers me you know in, in you know everywhere so yeah i mean i think that's a that's a great point um it would save us a lot of time when it, and it it might also discourage people scientists or scientific organizations for publishing things that are like bent you know to a certain direction right because like maybe they they right. went out with this novel idea thinking they were going to be right they turned out to be wrong and they just they can't let their ego go so they 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 keep on working at it until they get the answer they want you know sure. um so yeah, yeah no um yeah information is key <laughs> Yeah. Well, that would also be an opportunity for someone to say like, oh, I see where you made a mistake in your hypothesis or something and I could fix that. And, you know, maybe you actually end up proving what someone was trying to prove based on someone else's failed research. Like, I, yeah, that's absolutely. A great idea. I mean, it, 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 yes. I mean, it's always bothered me just how m- much slower advancement is because we hide our failures in scientific research instead of embracing them and just letting everyone know that we've tried and this is what's happened. And I always wanted there to be like a journal of failed research. I always felt that that would be uh, an interesting read for sure. Yeah. Um, So Ian, I want to ask you, um, how is your campaign going? Um, You're, you're a seasoned politician. You're running for house of delegates now, you know, you know, maybe you don't want to give away your strategy too much, but you know, talk, let people of the community know like what you're doing to connect with your district um, or jurisdiction, and uh, you know, maybe is there any opportunities for for help for listeners out there, or what can they do? Yeah, well, I mean, so obviously we prefer public servant over politician. Um, <laughs> um, but the, I mean, the broad strategy is to get more votes than my opponent. Um, that is our general path to victory, but we. We, it's going well. It's going very well. So, I mean, the community is, is engaged when we can get them at the doors. We think that the, you know, the messaging is kind of coalescing. Parents are still, um, um, parents shockingly are still very interested in having a say in their education, uh, their child's education. So the themes that kind of came out of the Yunkin campaign, they aren't, they aren't going away. That, that proves to have staying power. That's messaging that we're hearing back, um, from the doors, from the people we're communicating with. Um, people are paying more attention than further out, um, which is a little surprising. It's, it's still, it just, it just turned May, <clears throat> but, um, people are aware that there's an election. They're aware that this is important. And so that's, a, that's a good sign, um, as we're out and communicating, but I mean, we're, our broad strategy is just strong, aggressive communication with people. We want people to see me. They want people to get to know me. Um, we're trying to lead a, um, servant leadership style campaign so we will be hosting a community job fair in july something that i started doing as a city councilman but we'll be doing a free job fair 
Uh, we're working on that in July to help um, coordinate people in the region looking for, for work. So that's something that I started for free as a councilman that I also do as a business, but we intend to continue to do it for free um, as we go. The, um, yeah, I mean, we're, the, the way that cam campaigns unfold like chapters in a book. So the first section is become the candidate. That's the primary part. I think you're both familiar with that. Yeah. Um, chapter one, uh, be the nominee. Chapter two is kind of the summer months. And that's just your time. Many argue that campaigns are won or lost in the summer. That's your opportunity to really bank time, face time with people. Um, you run out of weekends as fall comes and then the time changes and you run out of evenings as, as the fall comes. And so your ability to bank time at the door and really talk to people, um, the summer months are ideal for that. And then you hit Labor Day and it's just a, a wild ride to actual election day. As for help, we're always looking for, you know, again, we're looking for door knockers to assist. We're looking for volunteers at different events. We're going to a, a bunch of community events over the course of the summer. We'll be at Noakesville Day on the 20th. Hey, um, me too. Yeah, we're we're looking forward to that, um, and you know we're we've got a full you know public calendar, and my um, I'm fortunate enough my my wife is by my side campaigning with me whenever that she can, and so we've made a great door knocker out of her. People like her more than they like me. Um, <laughs> we have what we have found, so, so certainly more willing to open their door. Um, so speaking yeah. of the doors, how many are you knocking per week? And then like, what's your, what's your rate per like door open? So we're doing, I'm trying to do between 300 and 400 doors a week personally. Um, and the campaign at large is trying to do closer, you know, six, 700 doors. And that's just with our current staff, but that number will explode as we get more staff on board uh, to do the door knocking. Um, we're at about an 18% open rate. Uh, you know, so 18 conversations out of 100. Some of them are very brief. It's, you know, hey, we know who you are. Good job. And we love those because we can just kind of mark that and move on. Some of them are a little more in depth. Um, I've been knocking doors for 10 years. And so it's interesting. I will say people are just less inclined to open doors nowadays. It's just imagine how many Amazon packages or Instacart deliveries or food deliveries people are getting on a daily basis. The doorbell has kind of lost its meaning as truly um someone is really there to talk to you a lot of times it's just indicating a delivery has occurred um so i i do think that there's sort of a steady decline in that um you have to be very cautious about what you're you're doing you can't hitch up your pants anymore at the door because there's a ring doorbell you know you can't be on, on on camera pulling your slacks up um as you're getting ready to talk to somebody uh because there's just ring doorbells all over the place yeah so you know, I was thinking about this. So what you're talking about is grassroots politician, well, excuse me, grassroots public servant. You know, you're spending your time in the community knocking doors. That's how you're really going to connect with your voter base and, you know, hopefully for you win the election, right? But you also mentioned less people are opening their doors, which means what? What does that mean for modern day campaigns as we go forward in state level elections? It's going to mean more money is going to have to be raised, right? Yeah, I mean, there's two. The yeah, there's two sort of approaches, but you have to reach the, these people somehow. And so is it through mail? Is it through TV? Is it through radio? Is it through social media ads? Or does it mean, you know, if the door, if the door open rate used to be 50%, and now it's 20%, that means you have to knock the doors twice. You know, so now you have to pay more people to knock doors, potentially, or have more volunteers to knock doors. So 
mathematically you could do the universe once or twice three times to get the numbers back up for the the face-to-face contacts um but that costs money as well you know the candidate only has so many doorknobs i i factor i figure i have between now and election day you know 10,000 11,000 door knocks physically possible and you know where does that energy go um so yeah i mean it all trends towards being more expensive unfortunately because you have to now buy ways to get face time with um potential voters through other avenues so uh, yeah, one of the challenges is is sort of access to like you know the fact that uh people aren't answering doors they may not also be answering emails. Like there's a lot of money that gets spent on sending emails, but a lot of that goes to spam. Uh, one tactic that campaigns take, I don't know if your campaign has done this, but is sending SMS messages. But yeah, there's a lot more rules around that now where <clears throat> you have to register your number. If it's not registered properly, it gets uh, flagged by the carriers. And now there's less likely that it goes to the, the, um, the phones. And this is something that's going to actually happen over the summer. Like we use it as an SMS service at, at the school I worked at just to send out notifications. And I had to go through this whole process to get our number verified that we're a charity and that it's it's legitimate and stuff. But you know, if you're a campaign you're using a fly-by-night consultant, that you may not have that. And so you may not be able to access people through those sort of more modern but kind of traditional means to reach people. And um, you know, then it just becomes a matter of using mailers. Like mailers can be expensive because yeah, it's a lot of postage that, that's not getting cheaper by the day. So it it just becomes tougher as people become more insular. Um, I think a lot of people think that, oh, I can just put on social media, but you're kind of at the mercy of whatever the algorithm du jour is and sort of whatever weightings in this mystery, uh, AI mystery that promotes your content. So then you're paying for advertising there, um, which again, it's, it's targeted advertising. So maybe it's targeting people that already know you or that would already vote for you anyway, are people that you're not going to be able to reach. And I think that's, that's one of the challenges of of campaigns in the future and, and, and now actually. It is, and and what's interesting is, I, I I can't think of a single a, a single method of campaign communication that the receiver of it actually likes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> so true, so true. I mean, no one, no one who who likes getting an unsolicited text message, who likes getting a mailbox full of mail they didn't ask for, who likes Facebook ads, um they're tolerated and the only thing we have going for us is that both sides have to do it so it's like equally disliked but it is it's interesting um i don't i don't if somebody on this podcast can figure out the next gen way of communicating that is effective cheap and that people like then that's that's money in the bank Um, i know I have, I have, I have, I'm so excited because I have the solution to this problem. Jeff Jeff has a solution to this problem. All right, good. (laughs) Okay. So every, so once you get through, I mean, the party should do this separately through the primary process, and then it should happen again with both parties in the general election. And the way it should work is that as a candidate, instead of spending all your time fundraising and knocking doors and going out to get people, you should set preset locations and times and days in, throughout your district, three different locations. So it's easy for people to access depending on how large the distri- district is. And you go there with the other candidates, the same place, same time every week. And you have basically discussions with voters. All of the the party's energy and the fundraising revenue goes into broadcasting these events. So people know when they're happening. This makes it easier for families 
um, and busy work schedules, people with busy work schedules to make an event and actually have a chance to ask a question to a potential, to a potential public servant, right? And then you record it as a podcast, which wouldn't cost a lot, and you could put it out. And then again, that's what you send out to people. You just one email a week with the podcast and you get to hear a long form discussion with all of the different candidates speaking to voters. And it's more of a conversation piece that you're listening to like a Joe Rogan, you know, like people will yeah. listen to Joe Rogan for three hours, but they don't want to take five minutes to answer the door and talk to a politician. But I have a feeling that if you actually put a civil you know, debate or discussion together, people would be interested in understanding what's going on. And it might drive out more engagement from the from the populace if you're able to actually plan and show up. Because one of the things I found as a citizen trying to be involved is a lot of the events are planned within like a month or a couple of weeks. So, you, you know, if you've got a family schedule, like my family calendar is booked out for three months. You know, like, how am I going to ever be able to make those events unless I have to drop something that's important to me? Right. So it, it, essentially, you want to Lincoln Douglas, the modern yes. campaign apparatus. I absolutely want to Lincoln Douglas, the modern day campaign apparatus. Um, okay, I'm in. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, Sold, I got one. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you, um, yeah. I mean, I, I think that would, I mean, obviously that would, that, that would be nice. Uh, it would certainly drive down the cost of, you know, the communication piece of a campaign and um, would making two candidates truly spend real time together in an open, you know, a format with enough structure that it's um, not completely freewheeling, but allow them to truly sit and talk and discuss things would be very revealing in, in, in a lot of different ways. Well, I think I think the freelancing aspect would be great. I think like everything is so scripted now, and people kind of right. people get a sense that it is so scripted and so fake that they like they tune it out. Like, but if you if you really thought like, well, maybe I'll get something nugget, some kind of some new information. Yeah, I think that would be that would be merit. No. Well, how many when you guys ran for Congress? How many primary debates did you all have? None. None. There were no debates. There were all there were no forums, debate, forums where we all got asked oh, the same question forums. and we all had the same answers because they were pretty generic and pretty. Uh, you're right. We we've pivoted hard to forums. That is that is true. Um, the party discourages dissent. Right. 1984 taught me that. Yeah, and, I think. And the Prince William Republican Party. <laughs> well, I think candidates. Um, I think it would be interesting to see who showed up to true debates, like true one on ones or um, people. No, for sure. Like someone would say, well, I'm the front, the, the front runner. It would do me no service to show up to this. And, you know, that's you don't get to be on be the ballot. But but if you're you not going to talk think... to the people, you don't get to be on the ballot. That's the rule. We need someone. We need someone in the General Assembly to fix that. But I think like, you know, <laughs> that would that would kind of show poorly on that person, hopefully that they, they're just not willing to talk. And they they think they can write it out because they're the quote front runner and you right. know, they've raised so much money. So you know, again, like it's not an overnight solution because you've got to change a lot of people's attitudes. But I think it's the one kind of thing where you just experiment. And it, again, yeah. like you talk about the, the failed research, like maybe it fails catastrophically and we're like, oh, maybe it didn't work. But, or maybe it works. And we're like, yeah, that's a good idea. Thanks, yeah. Steve, man. <laughs> I, I, I used to be sort of on team debates only matter if something crazy or catastrophic happens. And I don't know what they do or don't do for us. And then Terry McAuliffe debated Glenn Youngkin. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
and Glenn Youngkin became governor. So my entire, hmm? I said that was a revealing debate, wasn't it? It was a revealing debate. So like my entire, like debates were things to be endured and survived. And that was my first like modern day glimpse at, okay, they can actually do things. Um, You know, a lot of times they're held as do no harm. The, the, you know, I did forums when I ran for delegate the last time and it was, you know, you had seven, eight, nine people. You, you asked, you answered three questions, you know, and if you paused, if you paused, and thought contemplatively, you answered one and a half questions. You know, <laughs> it was like you could just essentially wait out the clock. So, not high stakes, robust um, pieces of public discourse. I will admit, yeah. Um, so let's let's pivot here to a couple other. You know, we've talked a lot about educations and elections. We're uh, running up on our our hour here, but I want to get a couple more questions in for you. So, uh, small businesses. I'm a small business owner, like John mentioned earlier. Um, I see lots of problems. Um, I'm curious to like, you know, tax cuts, uh, revenue reductions, like budgeting, like what are you thinking that can help, you know, stimulate the small businesses in America, in, in Virginia through the upcoming, like, I don't know, is, are we in a depression? Is it going to get worse? I I don't think we know yet, but especially with the, the looming, uh, debt lockout or whatever's happening yeah. here you know you're going to have a whole bunch of federal workers that aren't going to be paid you know what is the small business and commerce side of virginia look like going into the next year and, and what do you want to do with it well i think you know at the state level i think a, a big piece of it is sort of the mindset and attitude of our economic development apparatus in the commonwealth of virginia and even coming from a small government uh like manassas i'll say that there's definitely an overemphasis in economic development on landing whales, big companies, big corporations, billion dollar investments, thousands of jobs in one place at, from one employer. And we, we see it all the time. Um, certainly with the Amazon two expansion in Northern Virginia, you see it with trying to coax uh, stadiums to come to Virginia. And at the local level, it's, it's, a real it's a it's a whale hunt for bigger uh bigger employers bigger corporations and i think that that attitude has to shift and we really our our goal should be for every small business in virginia to add two or three employees yes our our goal should be to bring in those 10 20 30 50 five employee companies into the commonwealth um and I, I think that that's an attitude that starts at the top. It's an attitude that starts in statewide economic development planning. And it's hard because it's, there is, I've been, you know, I've been the guy with the shovel who doesn't love being at a shovel photo op and who doesn't love a ribbon cutting. And, you know, it's, it's very ego driven, but at the end of the day, if too much energy goes into landing the big corporations, then not enough energy is going into the smaller, the, the small businesses. And so um, most of the job growth is going to be in small business, small mom and pops. And that that's where most people work for a small business. Most people, that's where a lot of the, the growth is going to be. Uh, plus it diversifies your, your economy. So when you lose, for instance, when Amazon two comes up short, um, you're, you don't have all your eggs in one basket, or if, you know, we have the next level technology and data centers are obsolete. You don't have all your eggs in that basket. So helping, you know, I think it should be 80% of all the energy should be going to growing small businesses. 20% should be going to larger, you know, corporate headquarters being drawn here and everything. And, you know, that's a mindset I think you have to have. Um, 
flowing out of Richmond. You need a regionalized economic development plan. Economic development in Southwest looks different than economic development in Northern Virginia, looks different than economic development at the beach. So you really need to break the Commonwealth up into um, districts of care, um, regions of like interest and character so that they have their own economic development plans. And I'm, I'm running to represent Northern Virginia, but I want Southwest to have a more vibrant economy because that's where a lot of our money goes. It is stabilizing less economically um, developed parts of the Commonwealth. So we should all want those, those to develop. But, you know, at the end of the day, I I think Yunkin is on the right track. You need to constantly be ever vigilant about uh, red tape reduction and bureaucratic reduction um, I think the way that we license some small businesses, you know, are those licensures needed and required for um, the different trades that we have? Are we overregulating those uh, needlessly? Um, so just I, I, I like laws that automatically expire and have to be renewed. So, there, you know, I think that when you're putting some business regulations in place, um, sunset clauses that require them to be observed and to renewed and to be reevaluated. As conservatives, we should have absolutely no problem looking at a law and asking, is it okay right now? Does it, is it meeting the need it was meant to meet? And does it have any unintended consequences? We should have no problem reviewing any law in the books to make sure it's doing what it's supposed to do. So, um, you know, that's, that's kind of where I am off the top of my head. I think, you know, you're a small business owner, regulatorily, what's hurting you at the state level that Richmond can help with? I mean, I don't know regulatory like for me it's it's the labor issue right um, is is the biggest biggest thing that i face and and i even pre-covid we had i had issues with it i mean with the push of the education system where everybody's got to go to college you just have less people coming out of high school that want to enter that want to go to an entry-level job and work their way up right this idea that you have to go to college to get a good job as opposed to like work in a trade and like get a skill and work your way up. I mean, you can make as much money as you would pay to college in four years working for a small business. And after those four years, you could probably open your own small business with the knowledge that you've gained if you've, you know, put the work in just like if you were at college. So, and and we've talked about it before. It's, it's, it is an absurd reality that we are faster to give 18 year olds money tens of thousands of dollars in loans for higher education. But if they want two grand to start a pressure wash company, where do they get that? Well, and, or we have overemphasized college for decades and now we're learning, now we have a deficit in the trades. And so, you know, allow working to swing that pendulum back, um, destigmatize trade work, educate kids that they, so that they know that, you know, trade work is there and, and they can make a good income. I was talking to a guy at uh, the automotive dealers uh, folks, and they were saying that if you're an, a really good auto tech, you can make six figures, yeah. you know, within a couple of years. And I, I think the schools, the schools are lurching in that direction. They're moving in that direction. They're seeing that writing on the wall. And hopefully, you know, we can, we can speed that up and, and make that work. But I think, there was a poll a few years ago and it said, I think 60, 70% of, of college students expected to make a hundred grand immediately out of school. And, you know, those are people who are very disgruntled when they get into the workforce and discover that isn't true. So yeah, um, I, I end up hiring them. You yeah. Know, and I pay them the same amount that I pay somebody that came out of high school a lot of times, right. you know, because they don't have yeah. any experience doing what I'm having them to do. I have to train them. Right. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think, um, I think that 
there's a systematic problem where we're, we're looking at jobs that were never meant to be, they were never designed to be head of household jobs. They were never designed to be um, the primary income of a household. And instead of asking like, why are so many people now expecting these jobs to be head of household jobs when they historically have not, um, we're just saying, well, make every job ahead of household job. And that's, that's problematic. And, you know, the classic example is fast food or being a lifeguard or these sort of positions that historically were meant to be jobs for entry level people so they could rise up to other jobs. They're jobs that were meant for younger folks or temporary jobs or part-time jobs. And, you know, we're debating the wages they make when really we should be debating, like, why are so many people expecting them to be head of household jobs now? And yes. what is systematically wrong? What is missing in the opportunity? What what rungs are missing in the ladder of opportunity? What's missing from the education system? Um, that that instead of asking th those are hard policy questions that we should be asking, we're skipping to ah just pay everybody more. Yeah. Well, some of the the problem too is um, even if it is a quote head of household job, like the expectations are someone else in the household also working, also right. potentially making the same amount, and that that's almost makes it insurmountable where you're in a situation where both people in the household might have to work in order to, ra to raise a family. So right. um, just because it's a, it's a quote head of household job also, you know, and I think that's what a lot of go back to education. A lot of teachers are in that situation where um, it just, it, they can't make ends meet with one particular person running uh, teaching right. um, or, and you know, that's, they're not the only people like, like, like in that situation. That yeah. Right. So, uh, the Second Amendment is a big issue that's been up and down in our state. You know, a few years ago before Youngkin was in, there was all these rallies. People were very concerned about the gun legislation that was being passed. Right now at the federal level, you know, there's always talk from one side of the aisle about, you know, restricting the right to bear arms. Um, you know, in the Virginia State uh, Constitu uh, State of Rights, uh, it says the people to bear arms shall not be infringed. You know, where do you stand on this issue as far as, you know, for the state? And then if the fe if the federal government legislates something over top of the state government, what is the state's right? I'm scared to say that out loud uh, to, to do anything about it. Well, I think it's obviously it's again, it's a live wire issue um, that we are we are seeing come to the forefront, you know, far too often. I think it's a similar issue to what we were talking about a little earlier about about wages. I think that the real issue that we the real issue, the true policy issue is why are so many people nowadays with all of our technology, all of our ways to communicate with each other to come closer together theoretically with social media, with Zoom, with our text messaging, with all of this almost boundless technology and boundless ability to come together as communities, the opposite is happening. We are in fact, I think, drifting further and further apart. We have a veneer of connection, a veneer of a, of a community that is coming together. But it actually seems to me that that it is a veneer and that true connection is getting harder and, and fading. And so what is happening in our communities that certain people are 
not only drifting, but they're drifting so far away that they're becoming truly untethered and committing heinous acts. That is a very hard question. That is a hard question to ask. It's a hard question to articulate, and it's a very hard question to answer. And from a policy perspective, it's a hard question to fix. But at the end of the day, it is the question. Like, what is driving these individuals to, to commit such mayhem? And instead of asking that and diving into it, we're knee-jerking to, well, let's look at the apparatus because that's frankly easier. That's an easier question to ask. Passing the gun law may make us feel better, but it doesn't answer the question of why are these individuals drifting so far um, from community to begin with. Well, so and as you know, policymakers, that's the question that we need to be diving into more aggressively. Um, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. So I, uh, I mean, I, I agree. I mean, that's definitely like the area you, you want to dive into. Uh, I read um, A Time to Build with, uh, by Yvel Levin uh, over the weekend when I was in D.C. And, you know, one of the th- he, he very astutely identifies our political and social crisis that we're essentially walking through right now. And one of the things that he identifies is, is the communication aspect, which we've already talked about, like the failed communication between, you know, public servants and the citizens they serve, like nobody likes those interactions, yet we keep on doing them. Um, And then the other thing is, is, is the education, people don't have the tools to communicate to one another. We, We haven't been taught how to speak properly. Um, A lot of times what we say isn't what we mean. And that just creates a lot of friction. You throw dire circumstances on, problems, uh, struggling, you know, all the other societal issues that just happen in the course of history or in the course of, you know, your lifetime about paying bills and, and health crises and all that. And now you you you're frustrated, you're angry, and you've got this conflict with this group. And now you don't know how to talk to them. You don't have the words. You don't have the grammar. Um, you know, I think that's a big issue. Is just it's communication. We we do all of our communication through advertising now. We don't have discussions. We don't have conversations. Um, and I think that's where where we're kind of breaking down. It's people get frustrated. They don't understand what's going on, and they just lean to the easiest, most primal instinct that we have, which unfortunately is is violence. <laughs> right, right. I I, I think um, I, I I need to read this book because it, it seems to parallel kind of like my own my own my own thoughts on the matter, and it's a. It's a, it's a strange dichotomy because we are in we are in an age of of we're in an age of wonders. I mean, we are in a time that past Americans and past humans couldn't possibly imagine, and we are at a time of incredible wealth and incredible access to information, and and the miraculous has become commonplace. And has it made us closer and happier? <laughs> um, it, it I don't know it. it feels like perhaps not and so like what are we missing and all that and how do we fix that um is hard it's a hard question but it's one we have to start asking i think it's the only way to to solve the problem yeah um so we are we're we're at our hour ian this was a this was a great conversation um i really appreciate you coming on the show 
can you uh, leave the people with like your website information, things that they can contact Absol- you with? Yeah, absolutely. Please um, check me out at votelovejoy.com. I'm also um, blessed with a very unique name. So you can Facebook, uh, Twitter, Instagram. I'm easy to find. Just Ian Lovejoy. Um, there's only a few of us in the world and I'm the one running for office. So um, you sh- should be able to find me pretty easily if you want. And I'm always uh, willing to outreach and engage. And, you know, sometimes the answer might be no, but you'll get an answer. So, yeah. Um, well, thanks again for whoa, being whoa, on. Whoa, whoa. Ian, you didn't ask for donations. Are you a real politician? Oh, yeah. Money, please. It was money. money. <laughs> I, thought, I, I thought the whole spirit of this was to get money out of our politics. But, yeah, I'll take money. Money's good. <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> he, needs, he needs it now. Okay. I like, I think people at our meeting, don't blame the people running for office now for the system they have to go through. Just help yeah. them through it and let them change okay. it once they get in. Good answer. Um, good answer. What, so for the, for the people out there, uh, just, you know, uh, you guys listen. If you listen to the podcast, you know, uh, I'm really passionate about getting – you know, community engagement. I'm, I'm passionate about getting politicians or public servants to talk to people. Ian is one of the few politicians that I have known for years now who is very engaged with the community. I mentioned that earlier. This is the type of person that you want to do- donate your time to. This is the type of person that can really make change and really like affect your lives in a positive way through discussions and building coalitions. So if you live in his district or even if you live somewhere in Virginia nearby, and you want to do some good for your community and help somebody that can actually make some change, Ian is that guy. Uh, find him, volunteer, door knock with him, help him get the word out. Um, because as you've heard today, Ian is a balanced, rational thinker. And we need that in our uh, House of Delegates right now. So um, thank you again, Ian, for being on the show. Uh, For those of you, you can subscribe, like, share. Uh, You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and as always, peace and love.